And we're live. And we're live. And we're live. Yeah. Let's do it live! This is The Mud Peddlers, a podcast where two nerdy ceramic artists share the behind the scenes of their worlds of clay. We are your hosts, Lindsay M. Dillon. And I am Dante of Earth Nation. All right, so this week on The Mud Peddlers, Dante and I are covering some pottery myths, pottery and we myths. are busting, bursting those myths. Busting down Bus- the myths. We're busting, we're taking a bust. Sexual style. We're taking a bust to the myth. Oh my God. Nothing that I want to hear. I'm literally going to edit this out. I'm going to bleep it and make it sound like you're cursing because no one deserves to hear the horrible sounds you just made. All right. So, so I vote we do back and forth between social and technical myths. Okay. Yeah. No problem. So we are. And I wrote them down for us. Dante and I spent about 10, 15 minutes. Lords of uh, time. You know, preparing for this, for this episode. Yes. So I took notes. Although I don't know if you can read my handwriting. Um, I can tell you and then I cannot edit. read your handwriting. You can, okay, that's fair. Fun I, fact about I, me, I can't read in the first uh, place. Yeah, I did not do a very good job writing this for anybody else to be able to read it. It's fine. But I can tell you and then edit that part out. No, I mean, you don't even have to edit it out. I think they're cool with the fact that you're reading it. They know I can't read. Oh, oh of course. Of the course. fact that yeah, I can yeah, yeah, yeah. make my own glasses right. is a mystery. All right, so tell us, tell us the myth about porcelain. We have to phrase it different. All right, so. <laughs> okay, so let's go over myth number one, uh, which is that using porcelain makes you a better or good potter to begin with. Myth. Myth. Myth out of the gate. A lot of people think, and I thought this myself for a really long time, that like you basically work with clays like B-mix with grog until you get good enough to throw with porcelain. Yeah. I would recommend exploring different kinds of clays. Like try porcelain, see what it's like. Like every clay has its own different unique properties, which can be interesting to, to figure out how to, you know, if you want to keep working with it. But like you do not have to work with porcelain to like, okay, how do I say? I'm a perfect, I would consider myself a professional potter, a professional ceramic artist. I don't work with porcelain. Church. Yeah, yeah, I work with porcelain and dragon fruit and red velvet and be mixed with grog and be mixed without grog and not a porcelain. I work with whatever clay I want to work with because I have the experience behind it. But to think that someone is automatically a better or good potter to begin with because they work with porcelain and you do not does not mean they're automatically a good potter. I know beginners who've only ever touched porcelain and I also know what you would consider to be master potters or adept potters who work with redstone and they love it and they get fantastic results Mm -hmm. because the chemistry in the clay body and their glazes work together and they want a specific look for their art style and the energy it puts out and like they know their work. Yeah. Right. But to automatically think that beginners cannot use porcelain and masters are not using porcelain Mm -hmm. (laughs) or are are, like only using porcelain, not, not true whatsoever on a massive scale. Yeah. I will say though, the perpetuation of that myth needs to stop yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, agreed. Like, it's not true. I think there's one of the other reasons why people probably have that association. And again, this is me just speculating, but like porcelain is also more oftentimes more expensive. Yes. So if you're a beginner, it kind of makes sense to start out with a clay that is cheaper. And also I would say a bit easier to work with because porcelain... Porcelain definitely is like, like if B-Mix with Grog and I'm taking it to video games because this is where my brain is oh, okay. all the time. So if like, I would consider a clay like 
half and half or be mixed with grog as like you're playing the pottery game on normal mode. Throwing with porcelain puts it on hard mode. Hard mode. It may not be like ultra difficult mode, yeah. but it's it is it is finicky. Yes. I would say that of other clays are more forgiving. I would I think that's one of the reasons why people don't normally start out with porcelain. Well, I think you hit it on the head when you said finicky, because realistically speaking, if you are a beginner potter, a lot of your pots are probably just going to be what we would consider to be practice pots. And most people don't want to spend the dough on porcelain <laughs> for practice pots. Yeah. Right? There's also a massive historical I, I don't know whether I want to say advantage or disadvantage to porcelain because it, it does definitely have like an English and UK history. Yeah, well, it's which it's, we won't. I won't get into here. I think I I kind of I, I do kind of well, okay. We won't get deep into it, yeah. but essentially there is there is an association. Like even though a lot of these clays or a lot of like porcelains, like again, you think about Japan, you think about China, like non not Western white countries, but porcelain is often associated with like. England with England and yeah. because it's it was imported there are there were also some porcelain like mines in England yeah but it's there is an association with oh white people throw with porcelain because porcelain's the best clay and oh it just happens to be that indigenous populations work with red clay and it's therefore less valuable there's definitely like, like it's not that it's not that black and black and white so to speak but like there's an association there. There's definitely an association to that, but also on a historical level. And I'll glaze over this real quick. <laughs> he said the glaze thing on a pottery channel. So there's definitely a historical piece to it too, where essentially during the... And please, please correct me if, if I'm incorrect. But to my knowledge, during the silk trade, right, in between England and China, there was also porcelain trading. And at some point that deal went bad. And the English were like, we're just going to take the porcelain. If, what English if, colonialism? Yeah, if you're not if you're not gonna give it to us, and we like it a lot, it is a luxury trade. We do mm. not technically need it to survive. We're gonna take it. And at the time, China was the only place that really had the recipe and the knowledge to make that quality of porcelain. Mm -hmm. So it became like a very high class. I'm sure some of you have grandmas who have like the the antique pot porcelain with the gold luster on it. One, I'm. Just I talking. literally have a box of it like right there. Yeah. There's definitely a cultural association with that. And so I think that's bled down to American society, especially, of going, oh, porcelain is just higher quality and better. Now, technically, technically, porcelain is generally stronger, generally fired at a higher temperature than what we would consider uh, mid-fire range, whereas like stoneware and things of that nature, right? Porcelain is generally cone 10. We have the technology, and we use it all the time, to make cone 5-6 porcelain, mm -hmm. which is fine. That being said, there still is an association with it being more expensive, more wanted for high class societies, more difficult to work with, and generally just stronger yeah. for everyday use. Mm -hmm. Just because those things exist does not mean better potters use it automatically. Yeah. Master potters still use redstone. Yeah. Clay. Like they will use whatever clay they want to because yeah. they're adept. They're masters. Yeah. There's also a really interesting book that I'm slowly, slowly working my way through called The White Road. And I'm, I'm spacing out on who, uh, on who wrote it, but I'll leave a, I'll leave a note in the show notes, but it essentially talks about, or this writer talks about the history of porcelain and it's done in a very kind of like travel blog way. Cause he essentially goes to some of the areas where porcelain was originally like mined and created. Mm -hmm. And uh, anyway, it's really interesting. So if you were curious about kind of more of the 
history behind porcelain and the like colonialism aspect that's a good that's a really good interesting read and yeah. goes into it in way more detail than we could hear yeah way better way better way more in depth of detail than we could ever hear but i will say just to round this off yeah Beginner potters often use non-porcelainous clays or non-porcelain clays because they realize they're practice pots and it's more expensive and yada yada. But using porcelain does require a certain amount of respect. But like, if I gave my beginning students porcelain, in the next two classes, they would be like, oh, I just have to be a little more careful. And that would be it. It gets tired a little faster. It gets fatigued a little faster and you need to be a little bit more gentle with it. And that's about it in comparison to like grog clay <laughs> yeah it's not it, it, it's not so difficult to adapt to it that you are immediately a god amongst men <laughs> right right right, you right know? yeah i just my main things are like that finickiness and especially the cracking like because i already have issues with because i you know a lot of my work is a mug that i then attach a sprig mold to yeah like i already have a really hard time keeping those pieces from cracking yes. so the idea that uh, the idea of working with porcelain which already has a tendency to crack more as it dries, is like, nah, I do not want to put myself through that. I'm going to make things easier on myself, and I'm going to use a clay that has more grog in it. I think the idealism of society versus the actual studio practice is Mm -hmm. a bit skewed. Yes. Because the the idealism of society is that it's automatically like a master's clay. Like, people think, I got to work up to that to work with it, and then I'm good, right? But realistically, the skill bar is, like, intermediate. It's like, you don't... You just have to dry it slower... Use some wax, do some vinegar, maybe time your stuff to the weather a little bit more, mm. wrap it up, slow dry it, you know, like compress the clay a little more, even though that's technically its own thing. But like, it's it's not so prestigious <laughs> Yeah. that like you must be a god to work with. <laughs> Me killing low level enemies. Yeah. <laughs> Latin music starts playing. What? Oh yeah. Oh god. Health bar appears. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> yeah, porcelain is not a boss fight. It is not. That's what I'm gonna. That's what I'm gonna say. All right. Um, okay, so I'm gonna go to the first social myth. the The myth is that you have to be making money off of your art to consider yourself a ceramic artist. Untrue. Untrue. Hella untrue. Myth. Tell him, Lindsay. Yeah, I'm gonna talk to him. Can't stop me. I can't. I won't stop. Good. You. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's. The main reason that I wanted to talk about this is because there is already a lot of pressure, I think, to to make your hobby a side hustle. And I think there's a lot of, I think, well-intentioned awareness that, as you were kind of joking earlier, like, you can't just look at a cup and then call yourself a potter, right? Yeah. I mean, you can. You can. Because I can't gatekeep anymore. Yeah, exactly. But so, so there's, so there is that sense of like, all right, yeah, I think a lot of people are aware that they, you know, they don't want to give themselves a title that they feel like they're not entitled to, right? Like calling themselves a potter. But I think more often than not, I think people tend to go in the other direction Mm -hmm. of saying like, oh, I'm not, or I have to do X, Y, Z before I consider myself a ceramic artist or a potter. I, I absolutely agree um, with that. Yeah. And There's, I think selling is definitely one of those things. Yeah. I, because we need capitalism to validate our identities. Well, just just as, and I'm not, I'm not playing devil's advocate, but I think this is a different axiom in which we can, we can talk about. Mm-hmm. I think, especially with our generation, to some extent, the generation before us, hustle culture has become so integrated into American society yeah. that it has bled through 
our late stage capitalism, mm-hmm. internet meme, mm-hmm. you know, society. So I wonder if it's because our society is set up in such a way that people have to make as much or even more money and find more and more creative ways to make money because our system isn't set up in a way so that people can have an actual work-life balance and not have to scrounge for basic ass needs. I mathed it out the other day and the amount of money that I'm making by myself Mm-hmm. As a, like if I did not have my beautiful daughter and my beautiful wife mm-hmm. is way more money than I would have needed like 50, 60 years ago mm-hmm. to, I could own a plot. You know, everyone's like, I'm gonna buy a plot of land and make a farm with my friends and oh, have yeah. multiple. Okay. I could have done that with the amount of money oh I have God. now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if like inflation would have stayed the same and co- cost of living wages would have stayed the same or yeah. not gone up to the yeah. rate. Like if we wouldn't be priced gouged into wage yeah. slavery. Right. But that being said, yeah. I think that. Hustle culture has bled into American society as kind of the main culprit, honestly, as Mm -hmm. late stage capitalism to the point where we as people have adapted to think that we are not making it unless we're making money from it. Yes. I think that's a major issue. Yes. That's a, that's, I really, I like that. I like that a lot. And I think a lot of the newer generation, especially because you and I kind of lived through it. Like Mm. we see things getting more expensive and it getting, it's getting more difficult to like, Buy even milk and bread yeah. is still expensive. Expensive, mm-hmm. you know. I remember when I was a kid, twenty dollars buy like half a shopping cart. Yeah, yeah, stuff, yeah, or at least one of those little carts. Back in my day. Back in my day, <laughs> <laughs> when I was friends with Jesus. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> my zip code was one. And sh- <laughs> um, but because we're essentially living through it, it's mm-hmm. be really apparent to us. But like the Zoomers are like just like, oh, this is how life is. Yeah. Like if you don't hustle, you die, right? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. that's just how it goes. That's how yeah. life is, right? And I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. It kind of became this way after the rich got richer and the poor got poor. Yeah. Yeah. We're slowly turning this into a communist podcast. Sorry. <laughs> Democratic socialist podcast. I mean, it's guy. I'm here. I'm here. I'm right? not even that realistically communist. I'm just like tired of the shit being shit. <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a democratic socialist for sure. Yeah, I'm Green but... Party, I think. <laughs> Okay. I want to turn people into trees. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what Druid, that is, hashtag right? Druid life. I'm Druid party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nymphs all day. Anyway. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Nymphs gone wild. Nymphs actually. gone wild. Oh my God. It's just like leaves. Anyway. Um, sorry. <laughs> In the shape of boobs. In the shape. No, just leaves. Just leaves going wild. Just going through the trees. Anyway. Oh my gosh. I was going to say something. Oh yeah. Okay. So, so that, that being said, like, yes. I think. If, if it's the kind of thing where you want, want to sell your work to then be able to essentially pay to, to pay for more materials to make more things. Right. Like, that's also okay. Like, it, it's like you, I essentially want to take the judgment away from whether or not you sell your work. Agreed. No, I agree. Yeah. You do not have to sell your work in order to be considered a, a pop. In fact, I would say at the highest levels of not only artists, ceramic or not, mm-hmm. they they just don't even have websites. They don't have tables. They don't have... Li- like, people in the high art community just know about your work and they look for it and they find ways to get it. And there's only a couple paths <laughs> and you rarely sell or do commissions. <laughs> and, like, you turn everyone away and people pay a lot of money for your work and yeah. you're constantly selling out of your work. And, you know, like... That, that, that's, like... That's a very prestigious... That's... Yeah, that's a whole other very bizarre, like, capital A art world yes. deal. I, th- I think it this is kind of goes into another social thing that I'll cover a little bit later that has to do more with, like, social media. But, yeah, that I guess to, to round it off, as you said earlier, you can call yourself a ceramic artist if you make pottery. 
or if you make sculpture, whatever you, if you work with clay, you can call yourself a ceramic artist. I would say you like, can call if, yourself a ceramic artist if you just went to Walmart one time at this point. Oh. That's not true. I that's don't care not, anymore. Oh my god! You gosh. watch Harry Potter? You're a Potter now. Oh my god! I don't care anymore. So judgy. <laughs> no, I mean, I think again, this is with the assumption that I think most people. Anyway, I hear, I hear what you're saying. The titles don't matter I think, at this point. I, I think you're yes, but they really don't. They shouldn't matter, but they do. So I'm trying to offer yeah. a different way of looking at it. And I hear so much salt in your voice as you talk about the no gatekeeping thing. I, ju- I just personally think that if you if we continue to put definitions on things or levels on things to create a hierarchy of certain types of people, like you're this level of potter, oh, or you're not yeah. a potter, you're this potter, it then kind of keeps you away from the upper levels because you're you're just like, I'll just never get there, right? But realistically speaking, no one cares. The only thing I realistically care about Mm. is if, like, you should probably take some pottery classes. Yeah. Or, like, go to college to do, like, some, you you should probably go somewhere to do pottery to be a potter. That's about it for me. Or, I don't know. I think you can't. Your house? I have two, I have two thoughts. First of all. Yeah. In your classes, you actually do define what makes an intermediate ceramic artist. So I will I say I have to because I'm selling intermediate classes. Exactly, exactly. So, so that so definitions can be helpful. But I hear what you're yeah. saying. That kind of reminds me of something that I've been doing more recently, which is uh, okay. So I I've always kind of loved creative writing, and I used to write a lot when I was younger, and mm. then for many years I didn't really write at all, mm. and I've kind of wanted to include more writing in my work for a long time, but I always thought like, oh, well, I need a degree in creative writing before I start introducing writing into my work. I think that is a fallacy that fortunately I have gotten a lot better at working through and I'm doing... Major fallacy. Yeah, I'm doing a lot more writing in my work, but I feel like, I feel like you can kind of say that or like do something similar with pottery where it's like, like I've seen a number of artists, including like Birdie Tam, um, whose mail I get every month. It makes me so happy. Um, so she uh, originally started out as more of a 2D artist. And then she integrated ceramics into into her so career. She draws animals, right? Yeah. So I think, like, what I'll say is that don't worry about the label. You can call yourself a ceramic artist. You can say that you do pottery. But ultimately, don't put barriers in front of yourself that keep you from doing things just because you feel like you need some amorphous external badge of approval to do the things you want to do that's my major point is like don't don't put barriers in front of yourself because then you will see them as barriers all the time they're not real they're sugar pills the bear, like half of the time I talk to Lindsay and Lindsay's like, I want to do this thing. We're going to just do it. And she's like, no, but I need to do it. I'm like, no, you don't need yeah. to blah, 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 blah. just no. do it. I will. Okay. That's a little bit of a different thing. Cause the remote now I would say largely the reason why I don't do things yeah. is less because it's like, oh, I can't, or I'm incapable. It's more like, oh, the things that I have to do to make that happen is a lot and I have to find a way to work that into my pre-existing schedule and that thought shuts my brain down. But it's not about a feeling of inadequacy anymore, I would say. Mostly. Anymore. M- m- mostly. M- okay, all right. <laughs> m- mostly. Here's, I think here's a good example I've gotten of it. better. I think a good example of it is many people seem to think that you need to be some type of like really good chemist or really good scientist or something to create glaze. Glazes, yeah, myth. Second technical Which is myth. Which a giant myth. Myth. Creating your own glazes is super easy. If you can, co- okay, I, I say this, I say this with a grain of salt, literally, but like, <gasps> if you can follow a cooking recipe, you can make a glaze recipe. Yes. There's yeah. so many out there. Now, I do, I will say, I do think 
the skill ceiling and the skill floor are massively separated. Oh, yeah. I think oh, that yeah. because people who are really good at making glazes have taken chemistry classes and are like pseudo baby chemists. Yeah. Right. But and people who just know how to put recipes together, but don't understand why certain things exist, uh-huh. like pitting and crazing and things of that nature. Like those are things that usually someone who is new at making glazes experiences but the skill floor is super easy. Yeah. So, like, you just buy chemicals, mm-hmm. put them in water, sieve them, shake them up. I use a blender now. I don't even sieve anymore. Mm. And, like, that's it. Yeah. You really don't need... You don't need to know what silica does or what Custer Feldspar does. You don't need to know what the things do to make them work. It's just, like... Again, I, I love baking. I'm not, like, a super, super good baker, but I love baking. And it's kind of like... I mean, I had made... Cakes and cupcakes and yeah. cookies and shortbreads and all this other stuff. Bread. And I only recently learned the chemical difference between baking soda and baking powder. Yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, like you can bake and not know what all or cook and not know what all these various things do. But you just know that they work. So you can take that same thought to making glazes. A hundred percent. I think about it in reverse now, to be honest, mm. just culturally. And I'm sure other glazed people do this, too. Where I'll be making like something in the kitchen and I'm oh. like, that's the flux. It's not oh. flux. It's sugar. It's not flux. That's, that's great. That's, I'm just like, yeah, but it kind of does. It gets a little melty in there, right? Yeah. Like, no, it's not. No, it doesn't. That's great. Yeah. Um, but 100%, that is a myth. You do not need to be ultra super chemistry smart to make your own glaze. I think mm-hmm. I did a video with Ceramicon. It was like a 20 minute video showing you how to put a glaze together. And I even showed you all the little tricks. This mm-hmm. is not an advertisement for Ceramicon. I'm just saying that, like, it took me 20 minutes to explain how to make glaze to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was, it's, it's, and you can rewatch the video over and over again when you get access to it. It's very, very, very easy to make glaze. Mm-hmm. It is a bit more difficult and requires more experience to get to what I would call being good at making glaze. Because mm. like, like, because there's a difference between like making a glaze by just following a recipe and then yeah. like formulating a glaze based on knowing what the different chemical components do. Is that kind of the sense that you're... Yeah, but I would say that's like the high tier where you're like a baby chemist, essentially. Uh But even if you, like, let's say the bottom skill level is you're learning how to make glazes and you put it together and you don't realize why it's, like, so watery. And then, you know, you get a little bit more knowledge and then, like, you learn what specific gravity is Mm -hmm. from someone's YouTube channel. And then you, you're like, oh, okay. And then you start learning that the specific gravity or the amount of water added to a glaze... Mm -hmm really affects the glaze itself. Yeah. Right? And so that's a little more knowledge. And then you start learning about like, oh, well, is this glass? And then you're like, well, it's kind of glass. It comes with silica is the main glass former in Mm -hmm. this glaze. And then you're like, oh, okay, so silica is the glass. And the more things, right? Yeah. It it does definitely scaffold. But at at what I would consider the higher tiers, right, when you're really developing your own stuff, there's, there's the basic knowledge. And then there's like five or six tricks you look at a glaze and you're just like, okay, I can, yeah. I can do this, this, yeah. this, 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 this. And then you have your own glaze. Mm. And by the way, we actually have an earlier episode of the Mud Peddlers, if you haven't heard it, dear listener, all about getting started making your first glaze. Very so, easy. Yeah. So go back and give that a listen if you're feeling inspired to, to make a first glaze. And I would also say one, one thing that I got super hung up on when I was first, like, making my own glazes to use in the studio is I got really hung up on being, like, efficient with how much I bought. So, for instance, like, it's way cheaper to buy, like, a 50-pound bag of something than it is to buy, like, two pounds, right? Yeah. Like, the amount per pound. But, not gonna lie, I still have, like, yeah. a couple bags 
of materials from literally the first time I ever bought glazes. Years so, ago. Years ago. Years so, ago. So don't worry too much about, like, yes, it might be a little bit less efficient money-wise to not buy the 50-pound bag, but also think about the storage space. Yeah. You know, so just, it's okay to buy just the small amount of the materials that you need to make one specific glaze. Yeah, that's like, a good point. Like, even if you know that, like, or even if you've, you know, by looking through a few different recipes, even if you see silica show up a lot, don't feel pressured to then buy a 50-pound bag of silica. If you're yes. just trying to make your first glaze, just buy as much silica as you need to make that one glaze, and then you can buy more later. There's but the... it's still going to be cheaper than buying pre-made, pre-watered yes, bottle glazes. Well, because you're paying, realistically, and this is a side point, you're paying mm. for the bottle, you're not really paying for the glaze, to be honest with you. Mm. Like, it's kind of like when you buy and, soda. And the shipping. And the shipping. It's kind of like when you buy soda, or whenever you get, like, like it's a go cup at some yeah. point or whatever of soda. The soda is really easy to make. It's like five cents. Super cheap. But the cup itself is is a product yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. that is damaging our planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also takes more time to make. Way more time like, to make. Or, or the, or the to, sorry, to glaze. Because like, not gonna lie, most of the reason that I started making my own glazes is because I hate brushing on glazes. No one likes brushing. It takes so, it takes so long. It's harder to get consistency. Like, honestly, I think a lot of, like, cause a lot of folks, again, when they're first learning how to work with clay and learning about glazes like glazing is is kind of it's not particularly intuitive at first because yeah, it goes no. on one color and it comes out the other color yeah. and sometimes it runs and it sticks to stuff you know so i think the nice thing is that if you have a color you know you really like mm-hmm. it's so much easier to get a consistent looking glaze surface if you are dipping it oh yes. holding it for three seconds and then pulling it back up i don't have brush as strokes. opposed to brushing it yes exactly i don't have brush yeah. strokes and that shows up really easily especially on more semi-opaque glazes or glazes yeah. that are like celadons because any area where it's a little bit thicker is gonna that color is gonna be more more uh it's gonna show up more but then you'll see the brush strokes and again if that's the look you're going for that's great but i think to me that is one of those signifiers of how experienced someone is in ceramics is like do i see brush strokes in the glaze and if I do, does it look like it was intentional or does it look like maybe they just didn't know how to apply the glaze? I will say I just did a glazing class. So a lot of my class didn't know how to glaze. Uh-huh. A couple of them requested in the class, can we do a glaze class? Uh. And I think they were asking for a class on how to make glaze. And I was like, no, you won't have to pay me extra to teach you how to make glaze. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's a whole different area. This is right. a throwing class. Right. But I will do a class on how you ought to be glazing and the different types and the different effects. Mm-hmm. And like, Ooh, we should do an episode on best practices for glazing. Sure, I'm down. I just, I literally just developed a whole PowerPoint on it for cool. my class. Um, but because of that, I went through the whole, like, the whole gambit. Uh-huh. And so many of them were like, hold up, you don't have to brush? <laughs> and I was like, no, honestly, yep. don't. I'm not going to say don't, but like. If a company tells me to do something with their glazes, I'm like, I bet I don't have to do that. I'm not doing that. <laughs> now, you know how many of us are like, no. Uh-huh. Also, side point to the uh, to the original conversation, I suppose. Once you learn how to make a base glaze and you start figuring out the amount of water really affects the glaze itself, mm-hmm. you start to figure out like, oh, what else affects the glaze? And then you start mm-hmm. taking up a layering where you're like, okay, two seconds in the water versus three seconds oh, yes, versus yes, four yes. seconds makes a mass that you really start to understand your glaze mm-hmm. and you can not only get consistency like you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. but you can also 
change up the game at any time. Yeah. Like if Amico sells a black, that black is going to be that black forever unless something happens to that mineral that creates that black, right? Mm -hmm. But like most of the time, black is not a real color in the color spectrum, right? So like it's really just blue with extra steps, Mm -hmm. blue and dark red with extra steps. Yeah. So whenever I put a white, on top of my black, it's kind of melty and blue, like floating blue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that because I developed it. Yeah. <laughs> and so I know the colors that go into black. Yeah, yeah. So I know if I water them down mm-hmm. with another lighter glaze, you get this this kind of interplay of deeper knowledge when you start making your own glazes. This isn't me saying, like, that knowledge is more valuable, but, like, the control over your own expression of art is more valuable if you start to do that. And this is me telling you to do it now. Uh. Right I don't now. know. I don't you know. Go that, to Glazy. Like, I think you have more control over your expression, but it's not like your expression is inherently more valuable. I wouldn't say more valuable. I would just say yeah. you have more control. And that's what most of us yes. want. Most of us in the art world in general, regardless of clay, are looking for a medium in which to express something through a physical form. Yes. Like, art is the way you decorate physical space. Music is the way that you decorate the air, essentially. Ah, right? I like that. That's At least that's what's been... I'm regurgitating right now. But, like, the more control you have over the ability to decorate that physical space, the better you can express yourself, generally mm-hmm. speaking. You mm-hmm. have more tools on the belt to make a, a house that is more applicable to you as a person. Yes. yes and that's yes, about yes. it. But, like, that's just another tool, mm-hmm. right? And what I am saying is, like, if you want to make a square house, that's fine. That's if you just want to do this one color and this one thing forever, I'm no one's going to judge you for that. But for those of you who want like a different house, you probably need more tools for that. And making your own glaze is definitely one of those tools. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers to that. So the next social myth is that lots of followers on social media automatically means you make more money. That's cap. That's major cap. (laughs) That's made like he enlisted into the military. He was a grunt. (laughs) Then he went to private and then he like graduated to general and now he's a major cap. He, uh, okay. Right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I get it. God I get it. dang it, I, Lindsay. It took me too long. It Lindsay. took me a really long time. They're, they're laughing oh my God. so hard right now. It took me so long. You're stalling. I'm stalling. I'm not, I'm not a Russian dictator. But you are stalling. Stalling. Oh my oh God. My God. <laughs> all right. All right. So the the main reason that I wanted to talk about this is because, uh, well, there's a few different reasons. The first thing is I have had a real hard time, honestly, this last year with, pre- with like being as on social media as I've wanted to be. Like I've really fallen off of like answering messages as much as I want, like responding to comments, just co- posting as frequently. Like I just haven't been as good at it. But to be honest, I don't know that I've really noticed much of a difference in my income And I think there's also, I was looking at a post from an artist. I won't say who it is, but they have like 200,000 followers. And they were talking about how they know other artists who have way, way, way fewer followers, but make more money than they do. So, but it's tricky because like what, when I first suggested this as a myth, Dante, you had mentioned the whole thing with like sponsorships and other companies. So yeah, companies... Here, here's the thing. There is, there is a correlation in between the amount of followers and the big number that you have and companies being interested in you. And they will often give you money mm-hmm. for those things, right? Companies, I have so many requested because I have like a filter on Instagram. Yeah. Of like specifically the mushroom people, honestly. <gasps> it's the mushroom people, the workout people, and uh, other art channels. Who oh are my like, gosh. Can you give us a shout out? I have so many of them. And they're That's like, so we'll give funny. you a hundred bucks if you 
do this, and I never take them. Yeah. Because, but like, that is an opportunity to make money because the numbers be big yeah. on my Instagram. Yeah, but it's like the difference between accepting a sponsorship from like Larry and Studios versus Raid Shadow Legends. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Raid Shadow like, Legends will kill yeah. you. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, for in case in case you don't, and for our listeners who may not know that reference, essentially what I'm trying to say is that like, because you've taken sponsorships from like Amico, right? Yes. So it's like, those are quality sponsorships that you are able to get because you have the following you do. But they only care about the number. Right. If the number was small, they I could not, not even be offered those sponsorships. Right. And like, be yeah, because like, I don't, I don't get those sponsorship offers. Yeah. They don't give a damn yeah. about your community. They want to know more eyes and engagement are on their product when you mm-hmm. post it. That's all they care about. Yeah. So having more followers can open those kinds of doors. Yes. So that can open up like a third kind of avenue to get, or another avenue to get, to get more money. Yeah. But you then have to, like, it's not just having the followers. You also have to follow up to get the kind of sponsorships that are going to work for you and your brand. And, um, and if that's even a route you want to go down, you know, or because for me, like I don't focus as much or haven't focused as much on social media in this past like year, Mm -hmm. but I've been putting a lot more effort into having more and more inventory when I do my in-person events. Same. So I, you know, again, I can't, I know we like literally just talked about this last episode, but talking about like our incomes from purely the art that we sell. Yes. I want to say it's, it's similar, but you, you also have money coming in because you do the YouTube channel and the sponsorship. So it's like, yeah. yeah. So, so having larger followers opens doors, but you still have to do the work to walk through those doors to then make that follower number work for you so that you so that it actually translates into money because not everyone who follows you is necessarily going to like purchase your work i can definitely say there's probably three different avenues that i can think of in correlation to the amount of followers you have being directly correlated to how much money you make as an artist Mm -hmm. and i think that we do have to remember that each of these things unless you purposefully tie them in as you were talking about earlier Mm -hmm. are pretty much in a vacuum so when Mm -hmm. you see someone on instagram who has a lot of followers your immediate thought is they must be popular and making a lot of money right realistically speaking that's not true unless they've done as you were saying Mm -hmm. the work to open those doors to kind of um what's that word you always use where it's like diversify your oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. and and this can very easily be said for youtube as well i have a good amount of youtube followers Uh uh-huh right but not every one of them what often happens is people get into poverty they figure out it's hard and they they leave Uh um but not every one of my youtube followers are watching my videos but youtube alone does not make me enough money to to assume that i make a good amount of money off of my artwork or showing it or editing videos or otherwise yeah i essentially have to sell work for my youtube channel and direct you to my website i essentially have to monetize it correctly i have to do the work to do that i have to sell merch which might be coming soon or not who knows shut up Mm. Um, you you really have to as you say diversify your streams of income Mm -hmm. but do remember that that statement is made in a vacuum followers do not equate to lots of money or or you being good at your art yeah solely yeah I always kind of laugh. I like, or I rather, I laugh at myself because what I, what happens is I run into my own assumptions that I make about people because there have been times where it's like, I've seen an artist talk on like, 
I don't know, TED Talk or something like that, or like seeing an artist who has like a show and, you know, they're, they're, they seem very, you know, highly respected, very famous. And then I go onto their Instagram and they have like 2000 followers. Right. And I have to laugh because it's like, oh, if I saw, if I didn't know that all this other stuff about them and I only saw their Instagram, my immediate bias would be, oh, they must not be very big. That's crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. But, so it's like... But they're on TV and I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's... It also kind of reminds me of just the... All the assumptions that we make about how to make a living as an artist. Because, you know, especially early on when I was still kind of really going back and forth about if I wanted to be involved in galleries, if I wanted to like do shows and stuff like that. And Cody and I, my partner and I, were talking about how like the different value that we place on certain things because I was working on my resume and I was like, or he was, I think if I remember correctly, he was asking me like, well, Lindsay, why don't you, why don't you say that you were juried into the Fanime, into Fanime's artist alley? Like that was, that was a thing you got into. And my initial inclination was like, oh, I don't want to put that on my resume because like, that's not, it's not big. That's not, that's not highly valued. Like, oh, I should put that gallery show I got into, but he was the one who was like, no, Lindsay, like that, convention has a weekend attendance of like between 25 and 30,000 people. You put that on there too. Yeah. Like that's, that's worth mentioning. So there it's so Instagram or not just Instagram, but the number of social media followers that we have fits into this really complex structure of how we make assumptions about how, how much respect an artist should get how much money they might be making and how much, like, what their value is and just what value is in general. I agree. And then also what, like, success means to you. Because for me, initially, that getting into SAC anime wasn't as big of a deal. And I made way more big of a deal about getting into that art show, but nothing sold at that art show and I made thousands of dollars at SAC anime. So it's like, but then also that's, like, social credit versus money credit and then all that's kind of mixed up. Anyway, it's real complicated. There, no, <laughs> I think as a closing statement, we can definitely yeah. both agree that there is a false dichotomy in between the prestige of one's work and the success of a person, right? So like, yes. you might be well known in a certain atmosphere, but that does not mean you are successful within your own atmosphere, which is which is wild to me. Yeah. Like and also, like, defining what that success even means. A hundred percent, yeah. I, I remember... For a lot of you, it's money. For a lot of you, it's prestige. For, you know, different axioms. I remember um, being in college and... Oh, man, there was this, there was this one person who... Um, we, so we had, been, we had been getting a lecture from an adjunct professor about how to... Essentially, like, how to be successful in the art world. And it was one of the few, like, business-oriented talks that we had. And one of the other students was like why is she talking to us about what success means? She's just a teacher. And it was like, oh, dang. That's why. That's some judgment. Like, woo! First of all, most of us become teachers. Yeah. Because it's way harder to be successful on a worldwide basis than it is. Well, not anymore. Well, but like teaching provides the social safety nets that most, like healthcare, like so many other developed countries have. Right. But that America does not have. So teaching provides the kind of security that doing freelance for lack of a better word i can't wait until the season of the flex comes i'm gonna i'm gonna disrespect so many of you (laughs) i'm gonna just like those people who are like well those who can't teach and those who do do i'm Mm. gonna in your mouth oh oh god (laughs) (laughs) oh lord oh god usually people have to pay for that dante usually (laughs) i'm only one girl but i got a cup oh no Mm -hmm. oh that's that's
that's a reference. That's a reference. Well, all right. Well, that kind of ties into, I feel like we've sort of already talked about this, but one of the other, like, it's so closely related that I don't want to, like, make it a whole other topic, but, like, the that kind of ties into the myth of, like, lots of followers means that you're automatically good and skillful. And I, again, a high number of followers on social media means that you are skillful at social media. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are skilled in the craft or skilled in this art form that you are representing. And and again, not to not, that's not a way of saying like, yeah, you're shit and you, blah, blah, blah. No, of course, no, yeah, no, it's, you it's, can do both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's more of a way of saying like, very skilled artists may not have a really high following and artists who may not make like the most complicated, masterful work, but still make work that people enjoy and people buy, they may have a really high following. Mm. So there's just, when you find yourself getting caught up in the number of followers that you have or comparing yourself to others, like keep in mind that there's a lot of layers into our associations with that number and just be aware of what your associations are and keep in mind all of the different aspects of that, like defining, like helping to define what success is, helping to define, uh, like why you feel like you need those followers and like what you want to get out of it. Anyway, I guess I'm just saying try and when you find yourself getting muddled in it, take a moment to reflect and know that we got you. I We're will, rooting for you. I will say as a small example of making my, essentially making myself an example mm-hmm. is I do not follow people that are what you would consider the majority of the most liked posts on Instagram. The oh, high majority yeah, yeah. of the people that I like mm-hmm. have like 800 followers. Yeah. And it's because they're making 3D printed and like slipcast work and they're like glaze chemists and they provide <laughs> information to me that I think is valuable and they provide uh, they provide a, a type of visual pleasure to me that I go, wow, I can't do that. So that's really impressive to mm-hmm. me. Right? And most of them do not have over like 10K followers. Oh, yeah. At all. The high majority of them. But they're very, very, very valuable to me. Mm-hmm. in the community because they're the people that I look towards whenever I'm looking for things out of the realm of my own possibilities. But like, and I'm, I'm going to disrespect somebody, I'm sure. But like <laughs> the swirly cup with a cat face on it, I'm sure is, is with billions of followers. <laughs> I'm sure it's great. I'm sure it's fantastic. But most people like those things. And I get that. The people that I follow mm-hmm. are not doing that. Yeah. They're doing the weirdest shapes. Mm. Like old forge just made this, uh, not old forge. Hammerly. Hammerly. Oh. Hammerly just made this like oh. netted slip cast looking. Yes. I'm I sure saw he that. 3D printed that shape and then made a cast out of 3D print. Mm. And then he slip cast the mug. And then he like, I'm so sure he did all that. Yeah. Right. I'm so impressed by it though. Yeah. Cause I'm like, I no one's doing that. I'm not doing that. Mm. I consider myself good. I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But like the other stuff that people find visually appealing that most of us can do, I'm I'm really not. Mm-hmm. interested in them regardless of their followers y- yeah i will yeah, say that the yeah. followers do not indicate your skill to me mm-hmm. at all and that's also a good indication too of like what kind of followers you want because what is it there's a in my uh, art critique group one of the things that we talk about is like when people unsubscribe from our newsletters there's that sense of like oh we did something wrong yeah but like Sure, that like it's always good to be self aware that like okay, like did I do something differently that maybe like why did a bunch of people leave all of a sudden? Like there's there's some of that to be aware of for sure, but it's also like you know that's actually a good thing that they unsubscribed because now they are self selecting, and you want people following you 
who really want to be there. A hundred percent. Like at, at least yeah. again, depending on what your goals are. No, because, dig deeper. I agree with it. Yeah. Well, yeah, screw well, them. <laughs> well, well, cause I think like, cause if you have, if you have like, let's say you have a hundred thousand followers okay. and most people don't buy your work, but they watch you on Instagram. They enjoy the entertainment value. And because of that hundred thousand follower number, you're able to get sponsorships. Yep. Like that's one avenue of success. Another avenue of success is maybe you are a glaze chemist and you have 2000 followers, but those 2000 followers are super dedicated. And when you publish your book, they are all buying it and they are all telling their other Potter friends about it. And so like, so again, that like that, what you're saying about like who you follow, I think reiterates the idea that there are many different kinds of followers and therefore I think it is important to, if you're the, as the person who's producing the content that's then getting followed or not, Mm -hmm. I think that's part of why it's important to really keep in touch with what you want to do. Like, why are you doing what you were doing in the first place? Do you want to make swirly mugs with cat faces on them? Or do you want to do glaze chemistry? And if you want to do glaze chemistry, all right, cool. Then how are you going to build your business or how are you going to build your hobby or how are you going to do what you want to do to make that work for you? I get that the majority of people probably like the, the what I'm going to call the majority skill set, mm-hmm. which is like the, generally speaking, the more common things that most people can do as potters. But like, I really like Cone Infinity's work. Cone Infinity is... I don't think I know them. Uh, he is amazing. Is it just how do you spell it? It Cone... And then Infinity? Infinity. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Cone Infinity. I guess that makes a lot of sense. But like, okay. when I see him make work, I'm like, that. even as someone who develops... I want to say last year, maybe six months ago, Lindsay was like, I need kind of a mattish cone six red. And those are fairly hard to develop. A mm-hmm. mattish khaki cone six red, at least the family that they're generally considered mm. is uh, khaki. Yeah, you oh, see, this is nice. how many followers does he have? <sighs> I bet it's a lot. 9,206. I have more than him. Yeah. And I follow him because he is better. He's far superior at making places <gasps> than I am. Are you looking at his pictures? I'm looking at I'm looking at their bio, and it says TC Staden, Glaze God. You know what? Yes, bro. No, it's like yes. Yeah. All right. Shout out Cone Infinity. Shout out I'll, Cone put, Infinity. I'll put your information in the in the show notes. But that's and... the stuff I'm talking about. Is like I follow Cone Infinity uh-huh. because he's got the touch. But like everybody's got the touch for swirly mugs. You know what I'm talking about? That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So why don't we move to the next technical myth? We've got a few more on each side, um, and it has to do with. Wedging. Yes. See, she just, she just like pantomimed. The wedging thing. Wedging. Uh So what are we talking about wedging? The myth that you must wedge clay before working on it. Asterisk. Asterisk. So tell us, tell us about the asterisk. Here's the crazy thing. The clay companies have already de-aired and pugged and compressed everything and the clay platelets and the this and that and this and the that. There's definitely an argument to be made about clay memory, but I don't have enough research to talk about that or sources. <laughs> but it is I, it is a thing, but I don't know how to explain it to you. Okay, fair. I guarantee it happened to me this week where I attached a mug handle and that bent backwards. And I was like, crap, clay memory. Oh, uh, yeah. But I don't have the ability to be like, clay memory exists because of these factors. Yeah, it's, I just know it's platelets. Clay, I know it's clay platelets, but I don't know why. Anyway, carry on. Anyway, so. right. So the... the thing is that you technically do not have to wedge your clay fresh out of a manufactured bag. The crazy thing, the asterisk, is that you're probably going to anyway. And I don't mean that you're going to ram heads wedge. I don't mean that you're going to spiral wedge uh, or cone wedge or beat it into a little ball or slab wedge. It's like a sculptor's thing. You, you're you probably going to do one of those five things regardless of whether you call it wedging or not. I have this conversation 
with a buddy of mine on Instagram all the time. And he's like, you don't have to wedge your clay straight out of the bag. Mm -hmm. And then I see him cone up and down on the wheel. And I'm like, that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You are wedging on the wheel. That is what you're doing. Yeah. And then I see him like beat it into a ball. And then he's like, oh, you see, this isn't wedging. I was like, clay is, what's the word? Thixotrophic? Thixotropic? I don't know. When you apply energy to it, it becomes easier to move, essentially. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of like, it's like the idea of... I'm trying. Okay, no, I got. I got this metaphor. I'm, I got I'm this here. Metaphor. I'm okay. here for it. So it's. I like, don't know if it's correct, but I'm here for you know, it. No, I'm trying. I'm gonna try. Okay, so if I if I'm understanding you correctly, it's like human beings. If you like get up in the morning, you know how you're like really stiff, and maybe your knees hurt, maybe your hips hurt, and you're like, Meh. you know, existence is pain. But then you know you go about your day, you go get your coffee, you walk around a little bit, and you. Uh, you know, you start to move around and then it's like, okay, cool. You can start moving. So essentially clay is that same way. Generally it is applied to things that are like liquid or gelatinous, but clay kind of falls underneath that. Right. So why don't you read right there? We pull up the definition of thixotropic. Thixotropy is a, wait, hold on. Should I do my NPR voice? Yeah. Do the, right. M- do, do the, do the phone voice when you Hi. don't know the caller ID and you don't know who it is and you answer just in case it's like a professional thing. Thixotropy is a time-dependent shear thinning property. Certain gels or fluids that are thick or viscous under static conditions will flow over time when shaken, agitated, shear stressed, or otherwise stressed. Then they take a fixed time to return to a more viscous state. And that, that's essentially what clay is. <laughs> the cake is. is a lie. The cake is a lie. <laughs> and that's essentially, the clay has that property, right? So what happens is you apply stress or some type of energy to it mm-hmm. and you hit it. That's what wedging is. Yeah. That's essentially what wedging is. So even if you take the ball and you're slapping it around, by definition, technically trying to reform, realign the clay platelets and you're adding energy to it to make it easier, warm up the clay to move mm-hmm. and have more workability. The truth is that most of us wedge if we're throwing on the wheel, I'm not talking to sculptors right now, calm down, um, so that you have a better throwing experience, mm-hmm. right? Putting a square on the wheel, which is a tool that is made for making things round, is it less pleasurable than having something <laughs> already round go on the wheel <laughs> to make it into another round shape mm-hmm. for the high majority mm-hmm. of us, right? Yeah. And he's always like, well, it's not technically wedging. I was like, bro, you're applying energy. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, you, yeah. You're wedging. You're yeah. wedging. You're just not doing it the way that people traditionally contextually talk about wedging. Yeah. You are wedging. So you technically do not have to wedge because the company's done all the work and all that mm-hmm. in order to work with your clay. You're gonna anyway. I will say that is, it's especially though, like if you are... If you are recycling clay, though, you do want to you want to yes. make sure that you wedge. And I would recommend like wedging a lot and wedging not just on the wheel. That's the other asterisk, actually. Yeah. That I told you just reminded me of is that if you are reclaiming your clay, you've kind of broken down the structure of all the clay and you're trying to put it back together by taking water out. Right. Mm-hmm. And so rewedging it really realigns those clay platelets and helps it kind of condense as a clay body. And you really, you really want that. So if you're like me and you just recycle clay for the culture, essentially, I, I think it's an environmental thing, but whatever. If you are recycling your own clay, re-wedge that clay. Wedge the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I noticed the biggest difference in getting the homogeneity of the moisture the same. Because, with, and again, you know, there are so many different ways to reclaim clay. Yeah. But what often happens when I reclaim clay is that I will end up with certain areas within like a block of reclaimed clay that are more moist and I'll end up with some areas that are slightly more dry. And if I wedge the clay, those areas that are more dry get broken up and then reconstituted into the whole thing. So I end up with a a ball of clay that overall has the same moisture level throughout the whole thing. And it just makes it easier. Like ultimately 
Wedging will make working with the clay and throwing the clay easier because you're essentially getting the clay like more flexible before you start moving it more. Mm -hmm. But like you're saying, the clay company, if you're using clay right out of the bag, the clay company has already done the important part of homogenizing the texture, homogenizing the moisture, and getting out any air bubbles. Homogenizing is a big, I forgot to mention that, it's a big Mm -hmm. one. Because if you're, especially if you're recycling your own clay, you're, like, nothing dries evenly, right? (laughs) You're trying to dry stuff as evenly as possible, but, like, it's difficult. So you really want to re-wedge your reclaimed and recycled clay bodies. But when it comes out the bag, Lindsay's right. Like, it's, it's, most of it's done for you. That being said. Yeah. That being said. (laughs) You don't have to wedge your clay. Asterisk, I'm not telling you to wedge your clay. I'm just saying, in some form, you're probably doing it anyway. Like, regardless of me telling you to do it or not, there's probably something you're doing before you sculpt or put it on the wheel that makes makes it definitionarily wedging. Sorry, I know you just gave a really beautiful little wrap-up, but I'm going to throw one more little stick into that pile. Throw a stick into the pile and let it burn. Okay, I'm going to let it burn. I noticed the presence of clay memory when I was making slab tiles. Like, I was just, like, rolling them out. For I, There were a couple pieces that I didn't wedge, and I just, like, cut them off the block and then uh, rolled them out, you know, using two little guides to make sure that they were all a certain thickness. And as they dried, they curled hella bad. Clay memory is real, but I don't know how to explain it. Yeah. Anyway. It's real. That's it. And wedging helps get rid of clay memory, Uh for sure. It is real. I I feel so bad because I tell, like, even my students, like, clay memory is a thing. And they're like, how? And usually I'm like, well, this, th- I kind of yeah. razor everything down. Because uh-huh. it's either I razor down the information or I go on an hour long rant about why things are the way they are. We should then, we should have an episode talking all about uh, explaining clay memory. Dude, I don't know how to explain it. No, 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 but we're, we're going to do some research and we'll find out. I can't find the research, which is why I can't explain it. There's no research on it? It's not there's no research. There's just not enough for me to like say that like, mm. yes, it's a thing. I only have right. studio experience. Okay, well, maybe, maybe. Call up Matt Katz. But if Matt Katz mm. rings me back and he's like, I can't explain it either. I'm going to be like, well, what do we All do? Right. Maybe we You're should. You're the top of the line. You know, maybe maybe then I'll call. I'll call in as a episode request for for Flux sake because they're really good at handling yeah. technical questions. But oh, let's I'll do see. that right after this. All right. So we ended up talking about this a lot longer than we anticipated. So we're so going to go ahead and break this into two episodes. So uh, that was the end of part one. And now we are beginning part two. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Damn, son. Where'd you find this? <laughs> and that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Mud Peddlers. We would love to hear from you, so if you want to share your thoughts about the episodes or just see what Dante and I are working on in our studios, come say hi. You can find links to my social media at lindsaymdillon.com. That's L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, M as in monster. D-I-L-L-O-N.com. And you can visit my pottery shop or see what I'm working on at earthnationceramics.com. And you can find me all over social media at earthnationceramics. It's spelled exactly how you think it's spelled. And if you want to support the show, hear some bonus episodes, and see some behind the scenes of my work, you can support me and the show at patreon.com slash Dillon. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.